Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis and this is the show where we build a campaign from scratch for you to use for your group starting tonight if you're interested. Right now we're building a campaign for Deadlands Classic, so if you don't already have your copies of the rules, you might want to head over to the Pinnacle Entertainment Group's website at peginc.com and order your PDFs. Okay, before we get into this week's build, I need to offer an apology for last week's show. First off, it was almost 20 hours late in posting, and and that's on me. I had it ready by 8 a.m. Central Time, but due to other events in my personal life, I didn't get it posted till later in the day. That's on me. I own it. I also need to apologize for the audio quality of last week's show. Our resident tech guru, Gabe, pointed out to me that the audio was not as good as we've had in the past, and I realized it was because of a new microphone I was using in an attempt to make the recording process easier for me. Needless to say, that mic was a loser, so we're back to what's been working for us this week. Again, I have been properly flogged for the transgression, and I will do my best to ensure our high level of quality is maintained moving forward. So, with my admission of culpability out of the way, let's get to the reason why you're here, continuing our campaign build. As you know by now, this week's show will be a build-only show, as my group is scheduled to play again tomorrow night, so we have no recap for this week. Before we can build, though, we need to recap what we built last week, and I admit up front that we didn't get quite as far as I would have liked. We began our last session with the group leaving the home of Zebediah Thomas in Albuquerque after having gotten involved with a number of Walking Dead. While they could have scoped out the offices of the Albuquerque Daily News, they most likely chose to get food, drink, and maybe do a little gambling before they settled in for the evening. Next morning, they had to deal with the Shannon gang, picking up their weekly money from the distilleria. They couldn't get inside to see what was up, but they managed to follow the two pickup men back to their base of operations. They got inside and managed to find out that Buster Shannon is the leader of the gang, and while nobody knows where he lives, they do share that he likes to gamble at the wagon wheel and he can be found there most nights after 10 p.m. Of course, if your group had a bad rolling night, this could have descended into chaos, in which case they might not have gotten the information they need, but we'll try to figure out a way to get it to them. For our purposes, though, we're going to run with the idea that they got all the information. Again, we wrapped up the build session here, so this is where we'll pick up this week. At this point, the group has multiple irons in the fire, and they need to decide how they want to proceed. Thinking back, the $10,000 bounty seemed to indicate they were to deal with the gang problem, so your group might decide to go all gangster on the men inside the house. If they do... Fine. Use the cowpoke template, since these guys aren't quite as good as our standard shooters. There were a total of nine men in the house, but you can adjust this number if you have more or less than the five I currently have in my group, which is what I base all my numbers on. Just note that the group will need to act fast, then run like the wind to get away before the police catch up. Shouldn't be too hard to get away since they can duck through alleys and lose the pursuit. You can do opposed checks for this with sneak for the party and search for the police. Use the sheriff template from the player's handbook for the police if you're doing this method. If they don't want to do it that way, that's also fine. Dealing with Buster Shannon and finding out what he knows should be sufficient to complete the contract. I say should because I don't want to give too much information away just yet. 
you'll want to seem somewhat confident if you give them that info because you want them to think that while it might work, there's a chance it won't be enough. Anyway, the group needs to decide what's next. Do they just wait around all day for 10 p.m. or do they try to find a way to get to Zebediah Thomas? I know my group and I'll bet yours will do the same thing figure out how to get to Zebediah Thomas. After all, it's only around 9 a.m. There's an entire day to get stuff done before they check in on the other deal. Since they struck out at the offices the previous day, they're going to need to come up with a way to either gain access to the third floor or try to wait Thomas out and see if he comes outside. Trying to account for every possible decision a group can make on this would take a forest's worth of paper to write up, so I'm going to present two possibilities. They can enter the offices like they did before and basically just bully their way upstairs, or they can search the outside of the building for some sort of fire escape or stairs that might give them access to the third floor. Let's work them both out so you've got some ideas to run with if your group decides to try something different. And we're doing it this way because if they want to sit outside and wait, Thomas ain't coming out again. Somehow I think my group is going to do something different here. So I'm going to have to make notes for that later and you'll get it in the recap. So let's start with the most aggressive approach. Much as it was yesterday, the guys working in the presses on the ground floor nod as they pass through and head for the stairs to the second floor. Again, they enter to find most of the desks being manned with reporters and copywriters feverishly hammering out their stories for this evening's edition. They also see the six dudes paired off and guarding the three sets of stairs leading up to the third floor. And since I didn't really lay this out previously, let's take a minute to do this. The group is entering from what we're going to call the north side of the building, as I imagine the steps looking more like a stairwell in a high rise than a single set of stairs just heading straight up. So that leaves the second floor looking like the bullpen you've seen in numerous movies over the years. Lots of desks spread out around the room with filing cabinets and other furniture taking up space. The single set of stairs leading to the third floor are all on the south wall. And there's a set of stairs on each end. So one on the east wall, one on the west wall. And the third set is pretty much exactly in the middle. Those stairs head up to a landing. And that landing leads to what appear to be three offices. They've got glass windows and a desk in each of them, but they're not going to see anybody who looks like Thomas in any of those offices. There's also a door between the office on the east wall and the office in the middle. That door will lead to the steps on the third floor and what is believed to be Thomas's office. The pairs of guards are blocking the stairs, preventing access to anyone who doesn't have permission, and it's very safe to say the group won't get permission. So, with the scene laid out, let's get to it. Since this is going to be the quick and dirty way, that means guns are going to wind up being drawn. Use the Walking Dead template from the Marshal's Handbook and give each of them a shotgun and a pistol. Here's one thing we need to keep in mind. There's about a dozen or so men on this floor, so there's always a chance someone catches a bullet meant for someone else. So how are we going to handle this? I know there's rules for this, but I prefer to use my own rules for this since I feel like mine are a little simpler to digest. So... Here we go. Anytime anyone, either heroes or opponents, misses on a shot, there's a chance they hit somebody. If they miss, have them roll a d6. 1 through 3, they hit somebody. 4 through 6, they miss. If they hit, roll a d12, and that's the person who gets hit. Needless to say, you're going to need a notepad, keep track of 12 individuals, at least for a few minutes. And of course, you're also going to do as you usually would do. Roll your d20 for hit location and roll the damage. Now, if anybody botches a roll, which would mean if they miss but they have a 1 in their set, they will automatically hit somebody, so roll the d12 and then do the damage. At the end of each of your rounds, three men are able to leave the floor, so long as they can move. You can either pick three or roll the d12 to determine who leaves. 
And it is obviously possible that an innocent person is going to die in a crossfire. <laughs> yeah, I almost forgot to mention this. Uh, the only way to put down a walking dead permanently is to do five levels of wounds to its head. So unless they're really lucky on D20 rolls, they're going to need to call their shots. And remember that a called shot to the head adds six to the target number when they shoot. It should also be noted that once people start running out of the second floor, you know the authorities are going to be notified. So the group is pretty much on the clock at this point. In other words, this fight needs to end as quickly as possible so the group can continue on. To put a bit of extra pressure on the group, if the battle lasts longer than six rounds, bring three or four officers into the mix, again using the sheriff template. Groups call on how to handle that, but I would recommend making a break for that door to the third floor and let any walking dead still in the room deal with the officers that have arrived. So, what's behind the door? A stairwell naturally. And with the combat going on a floor below, most likely, the group should be smart enough to know that whatever they run into on the top floor will be most certainly alerted to their presence. Ergo, that means no chance of catching them off guard. Now, if your group managed to deal with the walking dead and nobody else showed up, maybe there's a chance they catch somebody off guard. But it's going to be pretty safe to say no, and it doesn't really matter. Because when they get the door open to the third floor, they find... An office, very well appointed with rugs and a nice desk and chair. You can furnish it further with whatever you'd like, but the one thing they're looking for isn't here, and that's Zebediah Thomas. If they're on the clock, the entire group is going to need to be searching for things, which to be honest, they should be doing anyway. The target number for that search is a nine, and with that, they find a hidden door, which has a very narrow stairwell that winds down. For the record, this is on the west side of the building, probably like a secret thing with one of the shelving units or something. This is going to be narrow enough that if you happen to have a character with the big in hindrance, they're going to have to squeeze their way down the steps. And needless to say, it's obvious they need to go single file down the steps. Oh, and the group is going to probably bug you about finding cool stuff in the office. Hate to break it to them, or to you, but there isn't anything here of interest. Whole lot of files with old story copy in them and the numbers for the sales of the paper over the years, but nothing that they're used to getting or that they're probably really going to want. They also don't find any cool weapons or money or anything like that. And yes, I do realize that's going to annoy them to no end, but if they stay patient, it will be rewarded. Oh, and give your group one red chip each and a point of grit. Now we're going to pause this part of the build right here because I want to switch over to the other possible idea we're working on, which is to search out another way to get into the office and onto the third floor. So let's back up to the group's arrival at the office. When they realize that a frontal assault is probably a bad idea, they're probably going to start scoping out other ways to get into the building and get to the third floor. To give you the visual, the entrance they used when they came in the previous day is on the east side of the building. There are a couple of more doors here, but they have some glass in them and the group can easily see that they're just more entrances to the ground floor. Moving to the south, they find a couple more doors, but it's the same story as before. North is same as south and east. It's the west where they finally hit Pater. There are three doors here, but one of them does not have glass in it. It's also locked, so they're going to have to consider how to get it open. Obviously, if a character has lock picking, they can use that with a target of six. Otherwise, it's a deftness check with a target of 10. And by the way, if they don't have lock picking and they fail, they break the lock. When they get the door open, they see a very narrow metal stairwell that winds up towards the top, but also down below the ground. Of course, they're going to go up. So when they get to the top floor, give them the info we just discussed a moment ago on the office. And just because we're going to be nice here, give each of them a white chip for their ingenuity. Once they realize they can go down, we're at the point where we draw both of our options back together. 
Now, if the group decided to start a firefight to get to this point, they realize they're going to need to jam a door closed or something to keep from being followed. But there is enough stuff in the office to handle the task, so no rolls are going to be needed. The stairs wind down to what we'll call the basement floor, though we'll see in a minute that this is the only way to get down here from the building proper. When they get down here, they're going to be shocked by what they see. They see a number of symbols painted on the walls and the floor, and it doesn't take much to realize they're painted in blood, though the type of blood is difficult to say. These are a mix of shamanistic rituals and voodoo, and if you've got a practitioner of either, they'll be able to tell you that the symbols have been modified or profaned, if you prefer, to work a lot of dark magic, like the type of dark magic one might use to summon evil spirits to do one's bidding. As an aside, if you go looking for this in the rules, you are not going to find it. This is something I've cooked up for my home game, and I am sharing with you as part of the build. So far as I know, there aren't any rituals like this in any of the published rules for Deadlands Classic, though I'm sure if somebody's aware of them, you're going to let me know. Don't sweat having to have rules or details about these because we're not going to let characters to learn or use them. It's one of the few times I'm not making something I've created available to my players, and that's going to be a hard and fast rule. Mostly, I've got to admit, because I'm too lazy to create a full system for it, but at least partially because I don't need my group running around using what is basically blood magic. They're also going to find partial remains of about a dozen different types of animals, though again, identifying what's what's going to be difficult. They are also going to notice a tunnel leading south and away from the building. Yes, I know, I really love my tunnels. Well, they just happen to be a really good way of moving people and things around without prying eyes being aware. Like maybe a group of troubleshooters looking for a member of the board, perhaps. Unlike the tunnels they've dealt with previously, this one's been reinforced with timbers and has planks on the floor. Also, unlike the tunnels they've dealt with in the past, this one's mostly straight, save one turn towards the east near the end. All told, they're going to walk about 20 city blocks underground before they come upon a stairway heading up. And it's obvious it was intentionally created as the tunnel was dug, so as also dirt with planks on it. And there's no door, so they can look up and see the wooden wall of some sort of structure. If they decide to listen, they can make their checks. I'm not going to set a target number, because unless they're just deaf, they're going to hear what sounds like a bunch of claws scraping on the floor above them. Now, this is where it's going to get tricky. As soon as anybody pokes their head up, the two werewolves that are up there are going to attack. Fortunately, the stairwell is wide enough for two to climb at a time, so the entire group should be able to get up there in just a matter of a couple of seconds. The problem, however, is that unless they're using silver, werewolves only take half damage from attack rolls. They can still kill them, but it'll take a whole lot longer, and the chances of wanting them dying, or worse yet, being bitten, increases. The werewolf is in the Marshal's Guide, so check it out for the full stats before you begin combat. Should your group survive this, give each of them a red chip and a point of grit. For the record, if they decide to turn tail and run back down the tunnel and out the way they came, the werewolves will not follow so they can get out of there and back outside the building. If that happens, they each get a white chip but no grit. And this means that once again we're splitting our creative process. We'll hit the easy part first, which is the group running away. In truth, it's probably the smarter move, but some groups probably aren't going to think that way. Once they're outside of the newspaper building, they can try to figure out what building those werewolves were at. I think the easiest role to use would be a track and roll, since they're basically trying to retrace their steps above ground, and the various buildings in the line running south will make it hard to do any other way. However, they do have a decent idea for how long they were down there, so the target number of eight is not unreasonable. Here's the wrinkle in the rolls, however. If you've got more than one person making rolls, if one person fails, 
they're going to believe they want a completely different building than the one they actually want. And they're going to do their best to try to convince the others they're right. If more than one fails, this turns into a goat rope because each person that fails will think it's a different building. You'll want to pull each player who failed the roll aside and give them the 411 on this so that the rest of the table isn't aware of exactly what your thought process is. In fact, I'd pull the ones who actually succeed on the roll as well. In fact, I don't think I'd tell folks if they succeed or fail. Just pull them aside and tell them what they need to know. That way, nobody knows who succeeded or failed and everybody thinks they're right. The only time I wouldn't do this is if everybody who rolls succeeds. Then just tell them in the open that they found the building. The neighborhood looks somewhat familiar and the building is a small warehouse or a storage house of some kind. When they look around, they realize they're just a couple of blocks north of Thomas's house. They can try the house again, but this time they see armed guards at the house, so sneaking in isn't going to be an option and it's obvious they're eyeballing anybody who gets close. They can try to talk their way past, but these guys aren't going to let anyone in, so any role is going to fail. Your group isn't going to like that, but sometimes we have to use GM Fiat to move the story along, and this is going to be one of those cases. So to this point, group's at a dead end. What they do know is that Zebediah Thomas has a lot of weird creatures that seem to be under his command. So let's pause ourselves here and go back to that warehouse, working from the point that they fought the werewolves and won. If anybody got bitten, we have to follow the rules for that, which is going to make things rather interesting for characters moving forward. For the moment, though, things are cool. They exit the building and figure out what we just discussed above, and they run into the same issues as the group that ran did. So at this point, the group is really back at square one, and we're going to work a little more on this later. Regardless of how they got to this point, the group should be feeling a little more apprehensive about continuing down this particular path today. Besides, by this point, they've managed to spend a couple of hours checking things out, and especially if they drew in the police earlier, they figured out they probably need to lay low for a little bit. So that gives them the perfect excuse to head back to their hotel, clean up a bit, get a little rest, and then head out for dinner, and then to the Wagon Wheel Casino to try to find one Buster Shannon. By 10 p.m., the wagon wheel is running at full speed with the whiskey flowing, the card games and roulette wheel running full tilt, and a variety of working girls and guys making their way around the building to try to find somebody they can make a dollar or two off of. The group will have an idea of the basic uniform of a member of the gang, so they'll be looking for someone wearing that very thing. Search checks with a target of eight lead them to a faro table where Buster Shannon is noted to be playing. He's wearing the same basic uniform of the game, though his is obviously a little bit fancier than what they've seen to this point. He's an older man and fits the basic description they got of the older man who Mr. Marquez mentioned he'd been approached by when the payment started. Shannon has salt and pepper hair with a black mustache and a gray beard. Everything about him, other than the uniform, practically screams upright citizen and businessman. Listening to the conversations he's having, he's using exceptionally proper English, and as they listen for a bit, they pick up the fact that he has an accent. You can have group members make a knowledge roll to see if they pick up the accent, but unless they happen to be Irish or to have spent time around those of Irish descent, the target needs to be high, at least a 10. Now, since they were around an Irishman when they were back in Little Rock, we can cut this down about a 7 or an 8. Your call which one. Now, I basically just gave it away. The accent is Irish, though the brogue isn't quite as heavy as you might expect. And the theory you should probably use is that he's been in North America for quite some time and has probably been spending so much time around non-Irish folks that a bit of the brogue is just kind of worn off. 
There aren't any open seats at the table when they approach, and it appears the six men have been playing here for quite some time. They're going to get that feeling from the number of glasses on the table combined with the cigar stubs and all of the chips that are out. The group can play this however they want, but it needs to be noted that nobody was going to actually get to play Pharaoh at this table. Sorry, Gabe and Aniston. No gambling. They'll also need to decide whether or not they want to remain quasi-hidden from Shannon. It's no big deal either way. It just alters how they encounter him face-to-face. And I just thought of this, so I realize I need to say something about it. If they didn't get the information by talking to the group members earlier, let's just say they found some paperwork or something. A note from Buster Shannon mentioning that if anybody needs to see him, he'll be at the wagon wheel at 10 o'clock. That's an easy way to write this off. Okay, so getting back into this, after about a half an hour of watching, Shannon will get up, gather the cash and chips he's won, and announce he's going to call it a night. This is where the choices the group has made to this point will come to roost. If they were obvious about wanting Shannon to see them, he'll eyeball a couple of them, then move on to a corner of the floor that isn't full of people, which is going to feel like some sort of trap to the group. But for once, it's actually not. He's there by himself when they get there, sitting at a table. If they weren't obvious, Shannon doesn't see him, and he heads off to the same quiet corner and takes a seat at a table. So regardless, your group really probably needs to sit down with the boss man. Whether he's expecting them or not, he doesn't really seem too surprised to see them there. Should be fairly obvious to the group that somebody in the gang brought the boss up to speed on what happened earlier today. And yes, that's even if they killed everyone in that house. Trust me, those were not the only gang members in the area. He will start off by buying drinks for the group and will attempt to make small talk like the typical getting to know you stuff. However, it's probably a safe bet that the group's not having it and they're probably going to want to get right down to business. Should they decide to talk a bit, Shannon will tell him he was born in Ballyshannon County Donegal in Ireland in 1826. When he was five, both of his parents died of illness and family friends put him on a boat to the U.S. where he went to live with an aunt who'd settled in New York. He left there at age 17 and decided to travel the country to seek his fortune. Now, he won't get into how he put the gang together, but he will say that he's got his hands in a lot of business pies, in a manner of speaking. Believe it or not, we're going to do a discussion here that won't require roles or negotiations. So long as the group keeps their cool and doesn't do anything aggressive, Shannon will talk to him, and will eventually get around to discussing exactly what they want to talk about. He waves off the deal at the house, regardless of whether any of his men died or not, though he will note that they acted with honor if they didn't kill anybody. He will state plainly that my boys did that to themselves. I warn them to be careful all Ways, but some of them just don't listen. If the group asks about the gang's connection to Zebediah Thomas, he'll be upfront about it. Thomas has been losing money hand over fist for a couple of months, though it hasn't been from gambling. Shannon doesn't specifically know where the money's been going, but Thomas has been meeting him at least once a week in his office at the newspaper building to ask for more money. To this point, he's $25,000 in the hole, and Shannon expects to get word to meet with Thomas again soon. If the group asks about the board member name Shannon got, he'll answer the question. Otherwise, he'll eventually get to it on his own. Either way, he's got the name, along with some incriminating evidence that Thomas had his wife killed thanks to one of his boys getting to the safe in Thomas's house. If the group asks about how the guy got past the walking dead, Shannon's going to look confused because, as he will state, there weren't any walking dead in there when my boys went in. House was as empty as a church on Monday morning. Unfortunately, the name he's got is one the group already has, and it's the identity of the banker. The evidence that Thomas had his wife killed is interesting, though, as it's a number of sworn statements witnessed by the county sheriff that appear to have disappeared from the county system. If the group happens to tell Thomas why they're meeting with him, he'll admit to being aware that 
Someone was going to figure out what was going on eventually. I've got too many boys with loose lips. He's willing to make a deal with the group. He'll give them all of the papers he's got in exchange for them allowing him to fake his own death and leave Albuquerque. He's not going to get into the details of how he's going to pull it off, but he assures the group that it won't blow back on them. But he does say there will be clues as to who will be taking the blame in the papers he'll give them. If the group refuses, Shannon will understand, but he'll also inform the group that moving forward, they are adversaries and the niceties of polite society will no longer be followed. In other words, both he and his men will shoot on sight. If they agree to the deal, he informs them that a courier will arrive at their hotel in a couple of hours with all the paperwork. He also tells them they might want to read the paper in the morning, hinting that reports of his death will also be there. Now look, I know my group. They're going to be mighty suspicious of all of this. So I intend to let them make their BS detection rolls. Much like other rolls we've done recently, so long as nobody rolls a one, they're all going to buy what they're hearing, just to different degrees. With an agreement, Shannon nods, drops a 20 on the table, lets the group know he's got the next couple of rounds. And now the group has a couple of hours to kill. Now your gamblers can gamble if they want, and the group can disseminate what they've just found out. The clock is somewhat ticking for them, since they need to be back at the hotel in two hours. But look, your group's smart enough at this point to be able to manage their time. So let's just fast forward two hours. They'll actually get a knock on the door from one of the desk clerks requesting that one of them come downstairs to accept a package. When they get there, it's a young boy with a flat package wrapped in butcher paper and tied with string. He only knows that Mr. Shannon gave me a dollar to bring this here. When they get back to their room and start thumbing through the papers, they realize there's enough evidence, at least in the form of statements from gang members and law enforcement, to have charges brought against Thomas. But since some of the law enforcement names are still in power, that's probably not going to happen. The info on the banker is in there as well, but the typewritten page doesn't have any new information. There is handwriting on the page, though, and it says, This banker fellow couldn't possibly be the leader of this so-called board. He's too open and obvious. I'm wondering about our old friend from Wyoming. Seems to be the string-pulling type of fellow. There's no name given, and the handwriting on this page matches that on the final page, which is entirely a handwritten note. It has today's date on it, and it reads, Gentlemen, First off, allow me to thank you for behaving like proper gentlemen this evening. You had no reason to believe me or trust me, yet you took my word as gold, which is a rare quality in men out here these days. I do not know what you intend to do with the information I've sent you, but I trust you'll find a way to put it to good use. Insofar as the boys in my organization, they'll get orders in the morning to relocate to Arizona and report to an old friend of mine. He runs a legitimate business there, and he'll make sure they walk the straight and narrow. You'll read reports that they found my body. Those are going to be partially true. They'll have found someone who looks a whole lot like me, but I can assure you it isn't. That being said, gentlemen, should you ever find yourself in Montana, might I suggest you stop in Billings and ask for Mr. McGuire. I hear he thinks you gentlemen are upright citizens and might want to buy you a drink. At least that's what I hear. The signature of William Sean Shannon ends, but there's a PS below it. If you're looking for another way to get to our mutual friend, might I suggest you head over to 32B Street. You might be surprised who shows up around 4 a.m. And if you'd like a few trinkets, I hear the safe combination is 35, 16, 22. Of course, that's what I hear. W.S.S. It's up to the group to decide what's next, but let's be honest, they're going to head to the address so they can be there at 4 a.m. And I know my group, they're going to want to get there early so they can search the place. 
32 B Street is a small one-story house. It's got a kitchen, living room, and a decent-sized bedroom, but the entire place is rather plain and drab. There are some clothes still hanging in the closet, and these are nice in the style of one Buster Shannon. Some of the shirts even have his monogram on them. It's obvious he didn't take much with him so as to really play the part of a dead man. That being said, they also don't find a whole lot of anything worth anything here. And they have a lot of trouble finding the safe. Takes a search roll with a target number of 12 to find it. Starts with someone figuring out that one of the floorboards seems to be a little bit looser than the others. After some exploration, they realize they need to move the bed. Once they've done that, they can get that board removed, but they'll also realize once they've done that, that a section of the floor under the bed can be removed, which exposes a safe buried in the floor. Not a very large one, but the combination works, and when they open it, the trinkets are 10 bars of silver and $1,000 in cash in various denominations. We'll discuss the value of the silver probably next week. As 4 a.m. approaches, the group hears people walking up the street towards the house because they are talking as they're walking. They can fairly easily find places to hide, but we're not going to make them make listens checks since they're going to be pretty much doing nothing else but listing and hiding at this point. They can make out about 10 voices and they hear movement as men spread their way around the house to cover the windows. There's no back door, so they don't have to worry about anybody coming in that way. After a couple of minutes, they hear a voice call out, not too loud, but loud enough. Mr. Thomas, we've got the place ready for you. A few moments later, the front door opens and Zebediah Thomas stands in the doorway. And the light of the moon shows that his skin is a sickly gray, with his hair a dirty gray as well. Just like the men guarding those stairwells at the newspaper office. And that's where we're going to stop our campaign build for this week. Next week, we pick up on the cliffhanger and hopefully we'll get some resolution for the group. Also, we'll have a recap of my campaign and maybe my group will get a little bit closer to being caught up with what we built to this point. I seriously doubt it, <laughs> but we're going to try anyway. As we wrap up the show today, I'd greatly appreciate it if you checked out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. That's the show where we break down games, game systems, creators, and any other topic in the tabletop role-playing world that we feel deserves a historical breakdown. We've actually covered Deadlands in the past, so if you're curious about what all we covered during that, go check out that episode in the archives, which are available wherever you get your podcasts or through our website at badgmproductions.net. And new episodes of Role-Playing History release every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. All Deadlands classic materials referenced in this show are the trademarked, copyrighted property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in purchasing Deadlands products or any of their other fantastic games, check out their website, peginc.com. Com. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for your license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter, we're at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And as I've mentioned more than once, you can catch us online. The website is badgmproductions.net. So next week, we see if our band of merry men and maybe women, depending on your group, can get themselves out of the pickle that just dropped on them. <laughs> Should be an interesting time, partner. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.